Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley and I'm Rob Hughes and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. R is for Ronson, Michael Mick Ronson, also known as Rono. We have to say before we get going here that much of the research in this episode came from the independent music press biography, The Spider with the Platinum Hair, written by Weird and Gilly, doesn't it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, find out more at weirdandgilly.com. Mick Ronson, born 26th of May 1946, died 29th of April 1993. English guitarist, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, arranger and producer. Genius. Absolutely. Okay, born in Kingston upon Hull in 1946 he was the first son of George and Minnie Ronson and had two younger siblings Maggie and David George was a fisherman who Minnie said would go to sea for three weeks at a time then came home for 24 hours and then went back again it was a hard life oh, oh you can't even imagine can you no. uh, George was a firm believer in family values and was something of an authoritarian just want to say at this point in time that I went to a, a, a Rono tribute gig a fundraiser for the uh, tribute to Mick Ronson in Hull yeah. uh, by Steve Harley and Earl Slick and Lisa Ronson uh, lots of people performed on the night but Minnie sat right in front of me did she and, really wow yeah and I, and I, I nudged my mate and I said that's got to be Minnie, that's got to be Mick Ronson's mum. And of course, at some point in time, they they highlighted her in the audience and she just waved. It's so sweet. I mean, like, what a lovely, lovely, sweet old lady. Just wanted to say that. How great is that? Was there a strong family resemblance as well? Uh, well, I was looking at the back of her head. (laughs) (laughs) What about the back of Mick Ronson's head? Yeah, similar. All right, okay. So anyway, so in the words of Minnie, he said he would jump up and down to music. We didn't have a TV, just a wireless, but he seemed to respond to the music on there. He'd jump up and down on his little rocking horse. Which is a great image, isn't it? Minnie also recalled how the family spent a fortune on a piano, partially to encourage the young Mick's fledgling talent. It cost £73, which in those days was a small fortune, particularly when you consider the average wage for a woman back then was just £4 a week. is some commitment, isn't it? Yeah. So, <clears throat> as a child, Mick was trained classically to play piano, though he would often memorise a tune and play it perfectly, rather than go through the usual process of reading music sheets. Because of this, he struggled to find a piano teacher, until Minnie came across an older lady who would accommodate the lad's talent. This lady turned out to be the grandmother of future spider from Mars, Trevor Boulder. That's just brilliant. So this is from The Spider with the Platinum Hair, uh, Mick's biography. In the book, they refer to the lady as Trevor Boulder's grandmother, not her name, so we can't really give a proper credit here, can we? No. 
She was paid for half-hour lessons, but would often let Mick carry on much longer as she recognised uh, just how talented and how eager he was. Yeah, so here's the thing. It wasn't until the recording of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars did Trevor find out that his mate had been taught by his granny. <laughs> so apparently, whilst we were recording the LP, Mick asked Trevor if he knew of this woman, probably because of the family name, I would imagine. Anyway, Trevor said, yeah, that was my granny. She used to give piano lessons. So, And also, uh, lest we forget, Trevor Boulder could play the trumpet. So they were, they were from a musical family to begin with anyway. Yeah, definitely. Mick Ronson, also a gifted violinist, picking up the instrument very quickly, but this is what he said. Violin was quite fun. After about three years, I got fed up with it because people used to make fun of you if you carried a violin case. All the big lads were getting motorbikes. I wanted to go out onto the streets, to the bowling alleys and stuff like that. I used to pay people to carry my violin because I was afraid to myself. There's some tough lads out there. I'll bet. Blimey. So you you would have to say that both the piano and the violin stood Mick Ronson in great stead in his later years, but particularly on Hunky Dory. On Life on Mars, everybody talks about it, but there is no credit on the album for who plays strings. And there's a Mellotron on there And I thought, well, it doesn't sound like it But I wonder if it is And so I uh, DM'd uh, Woody on Twitter Asking him exactly who it was Who yeah. did what on that album And he said, no, it, it, this is what he said actually String players, session players Hired him for the session, all live No Mellotron So they just Ooh. didn't they didn't get any credit whatsoever They just got paid the 30 quid or whatever And scarped So wow. there, are, there, are, you know, there are people out there, quite possibly Who play it on Hunky Dory And nobody knows it Wow, that's such an iconic character Odor, isn't it? Life it on is. Mars, particularly. Interestingly, then, he uh, wanted to leave the piano, violin and recorder behind and take up the cello. But Ronson moved to guitar upon discovering the music of the Yardbirds and the Stones and Dwayne Eddy, whose sound on the bass notes of his guitar sounded to Ronson similar to that of the cello. So he bought a six-string Rossetti guitar for £14 and the rest is history. He joined his first band, the Mariners, in November 1963 when he was aged 17. And this from the bassist Rick Kemp. He said he recalled in the first night Mick played with the Mariners. Whilst on the way to the first gig with Mick in a small town just outside Hull called Beverly, he pulled his Morris 1000 over to fill it up with petrol and was told by the attendant of the shooting of John F. Kennedy, which, he says, cast a cloud over the whole night. You forget how seismic that was, yeah. wasn't it? It was one of those, you knew where you were when John F. Kennedy died. And, and I have to say, you know, for a lot of my peers, uh, the same has to be said for John Peel. You know, yeah, where were you yeah. when you were that John Peel died? So, uh, yeah. not to draw any yeah. great comparison, but, yeah. you know. And do you know what? While we're at it, where were you when David Bowie died? It's oh. one of those, isn't it? You know, well, of course. God. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently, on the same night then in November 63, the band were confronted by a bloke in the pub shouting out loud that Mick was the best player around, that the band were lucky to have him. Must have been a real boost for him, yeah. that Mick Ronson. Because, you know, he was, he was shy, wasn't he? I mean, that's the thing that comes out of the book, how humble he was. And we'll get to all that a little yeah. bit later on. But a memorable night for Mick came in 1964 when the Mariners were bottom of the bill that was headlined by a new band from London who just released their first single, Come On. And the band was the Rolling Stones, a venue, a dance hall known as Bridlington Spa. It's still there, I think, isn't it? Bridlington Spa. Is it, British, right? Yeah, yeah, still a venue. Possibly while still gigging with the Mariners, Rono also had a brief stint in a band called John Tomlinson and the Buccaneers. Again, uh, from the Spider with the Platinum Hair biography, it's rumoured that Mick had been in a band called The Insects with John Tomlinson before he joined the Mariners, but that's never been 100% verified, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't, no. But this is a funny story, this, and it all came to a, a bit of a, an odd end here. So Mick started snogging lead singer John Tomlinson's girlfriend, Sandra. When one of the band spotted Mick and Sandra with their arms around each other just before a gig, he grasped them up to Tomo <laughs> with the line, Mick and Sandra, together? <laughs> and so he declared with the flowers, well, I'm not going to sing anymore tonight then. <laughs> to which Mick retorted, don't be stupid, get yourself on. We've got a contract to meet. Sing. 
Yes, he's brilliant. He said there. So Tomo then reluctantly agreed to sing, but only on the condition that Sandra couldn't go home with the band in the van that night, at which point Mick threatened not to play guitar. This obviously despite the fact that they had a contract to meet. So Mick says, he's saying, I'm not going to play. And Mick's going, don't be stupid. And he went, right, well, Sandra's not coming home. Right, well, I'm not going to play then. <laughs> it's like the Chuckle Brothers. It's just brilliant. Oh, do you know what, though, Mark? There was a happy ending. Well, at least for Mick and Sandra, because she went home in the van and she and Mick were inseparable for some time. While Ronson was working with the Mariners, another local Hull group, the Cresters, recruited him on the advice of the Mariners bassist, John Griffiths. So with Ronson on board, the recently revamped Cresters gained a solid reputation making regular appearance at local halls. Uh, Monday at the Halfway House in Hull, Thursdays at the Ferryboat Hotel, Fridays at the Regal Ballroom in Beverly, and Sundays at the Duke of Cumberland in North Ferribly. Where's North Ferribly? Is that a typo? I've never... Well, maybe Ferriby, is it? I don't know. Don't know. Never heard of it. On one occasion, future Rats vocalist Benny Marshall remembers seeing a Crest gig with Ronson, uh, most memorable for one particular incident. So this is from Benny Marshall. This is serious. This. So this particular gig had a DC electric main, and when Mick put his hands on the guitar strings and simultaneously grabbed hold of the mic stand, it gave him a nasty shock and threw him clean off the stage. He somersaulted and landed across a table before Eric Lee, also from the band, managed to kick the guitar away from his body. It had stuck to Mick, though, and burnt him quite badly. Oh, well, he was lucky there. Uh, fellow bandmate Johnny Hawke recalled how they sent for an ambulance, put Mick in the recovery position and prayed for his well-being. Mick was taken to hospital and the band, albeit shook up, did the gig. Hawk called in at the hospital to see his mate on the way home from the show and was told that Mick was lucky to be alive. Wow, so the following day, Hawk checked the gear for safety and asked his bandmates if they were up for the gig that night at a pub called The Halfway House. They all agreed to do the show. And when they got there, who was waiting for them? But Mick Ronson. Oh, wow. Incredible. He also guested on a couple of occasions with another local band. We covered this previously, didn't we? Just coincidentally, the King Bees. Yes, not to be confused with Bowies, of course. So whilst all this was going on by day, Rono drove a van for the co-op and was back living with his parents. By this time, his ambition was building and the fact that the rest of the band didn't want to rehearse as much as he did was, frankly getting on his nerves and so the band started petering out which is why in 1965 Ronson left the Cresters moving to London to seek work although things didn't really work out too well for him he felt out of place in London not helped by the fact that he lived in Harlow and one of his letters to Sandra well it went like this 24th of May 1966 do you know it cost me a pound per day travelling backwards and forwards to London don't you think that's expensive (laughs) so he took a part time job as a mechanic and in the May of 1966 he joined a band called The Voice a band reportedly backed by a religious organisation called the Process Church of the Final Judgment or the Process for short which was founded by a pair of disillusioned Scientologists soon afterwards Cresta's drummer Dave Bradfield travelled to London replacing The Voice's previous drummer after playing a few dates with the group Ronson and Bradfield returned from a weekend in Hull to find their gear piled at the flat and a note explaining that the rest of the group had gone to the Bahamas. Oh, (laughs) tough call. There are some letters here, and maybe we'll get to them a little bit later on, but Mm. that Mick wrote from London at this particular time. So we'll see if we get time for that anyway. In the meantime, Minnie recalled that Mick came home really skinny and absolutely penniless. She later heard how her son would live on a loaf of bread, counting the slices so he knew how many he could eat to see the weekend. Oh, that's grim, isn't it? By 1966, he joined Hull's top local band, 
band The Rats. Okay, so here we go. The Rats were an English rock band first established in 1963 from Hull, East Riding of Yorkshire, England. So pre-Rats, Rocky Stone and the Stereotones formed in Kingston-upon-Hull, more commonly known as Hull, in 1962 with Frank Ince on lead guitar, Joe Donnelly, rhythm guitar, Brian Buttle on bass guitar, Dave Barron on drums and Rocky Stone on vocals. Rocky's embarrassing insistence on singing and talking in a pseudo-American accent resulted in his being kicked out of the band. Rocky's replacement was vocalist Benny Marshall, the only member to play in every incarnation of the Rats who briefly adopted the stage name of Peter King. So with the addition of Jim Simpson on drums in place of Davy Barron, the group became Peter King and the Majestics. As a result of the explosion of the Mersey sound, the band's repertoire changed from rock and roll to rhythm and blues. The group had played mainly pubs, but in 1964, local manager Barry Patterson promised to find them work on the lucrative ballroom circuit. So, Patterson brought in Grimsby booking agent Martin Yale, and Yale suggested the band needed a more up-to-date name, such as the River Rats, uh, with the band becoming the Rats. Okay. Later, in 1966, the band was faltering, about to split up. Then news came through that Mick had returned from London and was looking for a gig. So he joined the band, then including singer Benny Marshall, bassist Jeff Appleby and drummer Jim Simpson, who was subsequently replaced by Clive Taylor, and then da-dun, da-dun, John Cambridge. Ah. Uh, everyone was knocked out by Ronson's dexterity on his guitar, plus it was the only person in Yorkshire, apparently, that they knew of who had and had mastered the wah-wah pedal. Ah, all right, interesting. Their set list at this time was made up of Tamla and Motown tunes rather than the usual blues or rhythm and blues material. And the band all got along well together and hung out socially, often going to the cinema together, although Mick's choice of films perplexed his bandmates, particularly his obsession with Mary Poppins and his renditions of the songs found in it. Now that is an image. It's unlikely, isn't it? But yeah. obviously true. The Beatles had just released a game-changing revolver and the Stones, their masterpiece album, Aftermath, the latter being a big influence on Mick Ronson, and the band started to veer towards a heavier rock sound. OK, so there's a bit of a minor diversion here, but it's a great story from the book, and it tells the tale of Minnie answering in the door one day to a stranger holding a suitcase. He said he was a mate of Mix and he'd been told it'd be okay if he could stay at their house. Minnie was all too aware of the stern nature of her husband and didn't think this would go down too well. Nevertheless, she invited him in and waited for Mick to come home to sort it out. But before Mick got home, this is what unfolded. This is what Maggie said. So Maggie Ronson, Mick's sister. He asked if he could go upstairs and freshen up. When he came down, he had all his hippie gear on and a big bell around his neck. He sat cross-legged on the floor and me and my mum were in the kitchen and said, you Dad'll go mad when he comes in. It was totally not our house at all uh, to sit around with a bell on your neck. <laughs> well, whose house is it? Not many. Thankfully, Mick got in before me dad, and we sort of put it to this guy that he really couldn't stay at our house. I'll never forget the panic. What a great little story. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Anyway, uh, so the group played the local circuit and made a few unsuccessful trips to London and to Paris. The Paris gig was actually a four-week residency, which didn't start so well when the van broke down in Grantham, Nottinghamshire. It was in May of 1967. Mick, now 21 years of age, found himself playing with the rats to an audience made up largely of the local mafia. What? This is, it gets bizarre here. Benny Marshall remembered one guy we were playing to actually had a wardrobe full of rifles. They returned home, broke. Mick's dad was losing patience with his son and kicked him out of the family home. He was so down on his luck, he'd often go around to his home, crucially, when his dad was off at work, and ask his mum, 
him if it was okay if he could have a bath. Broke, but exactly like the Beatles after their legendary stint in Hamburg, the rats returned to Hull, but they were so tight. That was the thing about the Beatles, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's where they, uh, I mean, everybody knows this, that's where they did the grounding, but of course, they're playing for like four hours a night or more than that. You come home just having nailed it, and, and the rats found themselves back home in Hull in exactly the same position. Yeah, and they got a good uh, local reputation as well through it. In 1967, the rats recorded the one-off psychedelic tune, The Rise and Fall of Bernie Gripplestone at Fairview Studios in Willoughby in Hull. Mixed Ponchon for playing loud was slightly problematic for the band, but its prowess was a major part of their sound. In the studio, they had to cover his amp with blankets to stop the sound bleeding into all the other mics. Around about this time as well, the rats opened for Jeff Beck, which would prove to be a big night for Mick Ronson. The band briefly changed their name. This was at the suggestion of a chap who'd been in London and was aware of the fact that music mogul Robert Stigwood was on the lookout for a suitable band to sign up, but that the name The Rats wouldn't be the kind of image he really wanted. So they did change the name to Treacle, but it didn't stick. Oh, Do you like that, Bob? love it, mate. That's nice. And booked another recording session at Fairview Studios in 69 before reverting to the original name. There was something of a revolving door policy with the lineup of The Rats. Future Bowie drummer John Cambridge was in, and then he left to join another future Bowie-associated band, Junior's Eyes. And a young local lad called Mick Woodmansey was drafted in from a band called The Roadrunners. It turns out that whilst playing on the same bill earlier in their careers, Mick had an eye on Woody and Woody had an eye on Mick. Oh, so by this time their set was heavy, uh, calling numbers from albums by the likes of Hendrix, Led Zeppelin and Jeff Beck, of course. So around this time, Ronson was recommended by Rick Kemp to play guitar on Michael Chapman's brilliant, fully qualified Survivor album. After being asked if he knew of a suitable red-hot guitar player, Kemp, on his way home, saw, and this is a quote, Mick Ronson mowing the grass on the centre verge of the main carriageway from Hull to Hessel. I stopped and asked him if he was interested. He asked me, what? A real record? One that's in the shops? <laughs> that's great. <laughs> As we know, Fully Qualified Survivor is a classic, isn't it? It's such a great record. Brilliant. And Ronson's guitar work on it is uh, is majestic and recognisable, even at that early stage. Yeah. The album producer, Gus Dudgeon, who ironically had just finished working with Bowie on Space Oddity, was reluctant to hire this lad from Hull. He wanted London faces. Like Mick Wayne of Junior's Eyes, and also fresh from playing on Space Oddity, was mentioned. But Michael Chapman stood his ground, Mark, and Mick was in. Yeah, so... So having already failed miserably in London, Mick's mum was concerned about his heading south again. She apparently rang Michael Chapman's wife and said, you will make sure he wears his overcoat, won't you? He's not very strong, you know, health-wise, so we want to make sure he'll be looked after. Oh, how sweet. sweet. Ah, in November 1969, the Rats recorded a final session at Fairview, taping Telephone Blues and Early in Spring. So in March 1970, during the recording sessions for Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection, Ronson played guitar on the track Madman Across the Water. This song, however, wasn't included on the original release, but the recording featuring Ronson was released on the 1992 compilation Rare Masters, as well as the uh, deluxe edition of Tumbleweed Connection 2008. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. 
but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So the rats were done. They all went their different ways. Mick would cross-pollinate with some of them a little bit later on, but he was about to meet up with the person who was going to change his life, which was actually David Bowie. Okay, so uh, we're just going to have a quick run-through a lot of the things that happened with Mick Ronson with his association with David Bowie. Yeah, we know, don't we, that he was absolutely crucial to uh, Bowie's rise to stardom. He and Tony Visconti, for example, did the hard work on their first record together, The Man Who Sold the World. So Mick's guitar sound was the sound of that album, really. It was, and whilst David wasn't exactly uninvolved in the construction of the album. He was certainly distracted, wasn't he, by his new squeeze, Angela Barnett. Yeah, we covered that in The Man Who Sold the World. And as we know, Mick was very reluctant to be steered down the glam route. His character in The Height was probably the most macho of the group, Gangster Man. Mm. And you can imagine that if Bowie had asked him to be Rainbow Man, he probably would have told him to stick it. Very possibly, yeah, yeah. absolutely. He was the last of the spiders to agree to wearing makeup as well. It has been said that the effect it had on the female contingent of its audience soon uh, persuaded him otherwise. Yeah, whilst The Man Who Sold The World was a sensational album, mixed-up hybrid affair, his next work with Bowie was where his musicianship really came to the fore. Definitely. On Hunky Dory, Rono came of age as an all-round musician and, crucially, a ranger. Yeah, an incredible achievement. Listening to Life On Mars particularly, you would have to say it sounds like the handiwork of a master. Although Hunky Dory is dominated by the mastery of Rick Wakeman, Rono is the somewhat unsung hero. Yeah, the next album was to be Ronson's, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And it was that point that Ronson became a guitar hero and the best ever foil to a rock star, who also happened to be the best ever rock star. And of course, this is just our opinion, isn't it, Mark? That's right, it is, mate, yeah. And uh, so, I, do you know what? I do remember always desperately trying to find photographs of Ronson and Woody and Trevor and trying to find out more about them. But Bowie was so newsworthy and so... Uh, such a focal point that they got overlooked you couldn't really find no. anything much about them yeah not at all around the same time his work on Transformer by Lou Reed cemented his reputation as a huge talent in the studio yeah Aladdin Sane was less of a guitar album than Ziggy with Mark Garson having a big effect on the band's sound and in Phoenix Arizona whilst on the Ziggy tour Susie Fussy dyed Mick's hair a defiant beautiful silver on a day off in the blistering sun wearing the tiniest speedos mm, uh, Mick took to sunbathing and went bright red then jumped in the pool and the, the effect was the claw in the pool reacted to the chemicals in his hair turning it green so this couldn't have helped could it really in reassuring the more conservative elements of the uh, American audience of Bowie's that Ziggy and the Spiders weren't aliens no it completely freaked him out I think didn't it I mean, you can imagine jumping in there knowing what you look like and coming out with a green barnet that's not what yeah. you want really as we know the end of the Spiders from Mars saw main man promised to make Mick Ronson into a star the same kind of star that Bowie was but truth be told he was never going to be that so I joined his fan club right. I've got some of the clubbers still here yeah. you know and I went on the uh, debut solo tour I saw him playing at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester on that particular tour alright so what, what, what was it like as a front man well he, he was a little bit stiff you would say you know and he, and he was most 
at ease, as you would expect, when he was playing his guitar. Yeah. Um, but it was great to see him do it. And he, and he really, he showed out and he looked great, obviously. He really looked great. And he was having a back and forth with the audience. And I do remember there was a guy called Mick Rossi, still is a guy called Mick Rossi, from Slaughter and the Dogs. Yeah. And he was near us at the Free Trade Hall whilst the gig was taking part. And I knew him and he was telling me that he knew Mick Ronson mm. and I didn't believe him. And uh, yeah, at one point Mick Ronson pointed at him from the stage right. and he's like there did you see that I was like oh, oh yes I did <laughs> should mention as well that Mick Rossi later in the day you would go down to Ken Pitt's house wouldn't he in London him and his mate would sit with Ken Pitt for a while and be given lots of memorabilia and stuff Mick Ronson did say to Mike Rossi or Mick Rossi that if you ever make a record I'll give you my guitar Whoa. now they did make a record and it was a white uh, Gibson Les Paul that Mick Ronson was talking mm. about uh, so he went and got a CSL copy Mick Ronson and gave him that instead Whoa, amazing well, good enough good <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely good enough yeah so the following year, I saw him on the Hunter Ronson tour as ah. well, which was great. It was a bit more comfortable because obviously Ian Hunter did, uh, you know, the lion's share of the sure, singing yeah. and all that, yeah. And also Steve Hanley and I waited at the bottom of the escalator at the Piccadilly Hotel to try and meet them both the day after that gig. And we waited for a while and they did come down and they both signed our stuff. They were just chatting away. Oh. We, we accosted them and we took the autographs off them. And I remember there was a flyer at the time and it was um, Hunter and Ronson sat on some benches. It looked almost uh, like in a football ground, an old old-fashioned football ground, just benches, basically, on, right. on steps yeah. with all the tour dates on it. And they signed it. And for some reason, we're just well-mannered young men. We let them walk across Piccadilly Gardens when it was a gardens and quite beautiful yeah. off into the distance, whereas really what we should have done was follow them around all oh, day. Oh, yeah? But hey. we didn't, uh, you know. So um, so what happened to the... Have you got those autographs still? I haven't. Oh, Mark, come on. I know. Oh. And I'm, I've asked Steve Hanley as well. Oh. I don't think Steve's got his either, so really? I don't know what happened to them. All right, so we're, uh, we're looking at Mick Ronson and his cross-pollination with David Bowie. Early in 1970, John Cambridge came back to Hull in search of Ronson with the sole aim of recruiting him for a new David Bowie backing band called The Hype. He'd famously found Ronson marking out a football pitch, one of his duties as a Parks Department gardener for Hull City Council. So Ronson was reluctant, having had some bad experiences down south, but was persuaded by John Cambridge that he should meet David Bowie at Haddon Hall. And uh, yeah, he did. Maggie said later he was doing quite well locally and seemed happy with his job as a gardener. He eventually went for it and didn't look back. Apparently Mick said to his mother, Mother, do you really think that I will ever become a good musician or that I will ever make it? To which she replied that she was confident that he would. Of course she'd say that anyway. Uh, yeah, oh, bless her. So we've got to take stock here, right? So Hull wasn't a hotbed of rock and roll, was it, in the 60s? There was, there was a bit going on, as we were in all these uh, cities, you know. Yeah, but a few like R&B bands and the rest of it. He was the best guitarist in Hull and he was outrageously humble and he didn't seemingly have any confidence in his own ability. No, uh, having said that, you know, imagine if he'd been really headstrong. He might have been a nightmare to deal with. Yeah. Uh, when the news broke that a local lad was going to London to play alongside a chart act, obviously this is Bowie with Space Oddity, it ran a piece with the headline, X-Rat gets chance in big time, and wrote, It'll be quite a weekend for Michael, who today says goodbye to his works with Hull Park's department, and tomorrow announces his engagement to 16-year-old Denise Irvin, who, like Michael, lives on Greenfield Estate at 32 Bexhill Close. <laughs> Too much information! Do people need to know that? Yeah, no, it's a bit odd, isn't it, really? Uh, one awkward introduction, limited rehearsals, and two days later, on the 5th of February, Mick Ronson made his debut with Bowie on John Peel's BBC Radio 1 show. To begin with, Bowie was afraid that Mick's nervous disposition would be a problem, but then he uh, picked the 
the guitar up and the nerves backed off straight away. This is what John Cambridge said. There was a small matter of learning the songs for the radio show. Two new numbers were going to be played on the programme. The first, Prettiest Star, had been recorded in January. The second tune was brand new. The other was Width of a Circle, which, as we know, Mark, was to prove to be one of Mick's greatest moments. What a, I mean, what a tune that is. Yeah, no, amazing. So, recognising Bowie's talent, Ronson became a component part of the hype, who played the first gig at the Roundhouse on the 22nd of February, with a lineup that included Bowie, Ronson, alongside John Cambridge and producer bassist Tony Visconti. Yeah, and as we know, the group dressed up in superhero costumes, Bowie as Rainbow Man, Visconti as Hype Man, Cambridge as Cowboy Man and Ronson as Gangster Man. Also on the bill that day were... Bakdenkel, The Groundhogs and Caravan. The following day, they performed at the Streatham Arms in London under the pseudonym of Harry the Butcher. They also performed as a last-minute substitute for the errant Straubs on the 28th of February at the Basildon Arts Lab in Essex, billed as Davy Bowie's new electric band. That actual billing, Davy Bowie's new electric band, is also an advert in Melody Maker or Enemy at the time, isn't it? For yeah, there is. For that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen yeah, that yeah. Uh, also on the bill were High Tide, Overson and Iron Butterfly. That's an unusual one. Yeah. Uh, Mick might have been a shy character, but he wasn't averse to telling dirty jokes. Apparently. So this is, uh, in the words of Tony Visconti here, he says, um, one thing Mick shared with all musicians was uh, a good mind for a dirty joke. He could get in there and tell them really well. Every northerner has that. I beg your pardon. Uh, That's a little bit presumptuous, isn't it, Mark? To be honest, and patronising. John Cambridge, he says, was a teller of dirty stories too, but Mick was right there behind him. He'd come up with one when John was taking a break. Uh, Mick would come in with a good, filthy joke, and he would have David and I rolling on the floor laughing. Great stuff. So on the 6th of March, 1970, Mick's triumphant homecoming gig with Bowie at the University of Hull. Former Rats leader Benny Marshall joined them on stage to play harmonica on Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed. On the same day, the single The Prettiest Star was released as we know with Mark Boland on guitar uh, then the tune that uh, Mick Ronson would replicate somewhere down the line on uh, Aladdin Sane. Yeah, indeed. A session for the BBC's Sounds of the 70s was recorded in late March 1970. Mick was becoming increasingly confident in his own abilities at that point, but Tony Visconti noticed that the bohemian lifestyle that Bowie was enjoying was a little bit alien to Ronson saying that when they'd go all go out to parties, you could see Mick was miles away, probably thinking about what he was going to do in the studio the next day. OK, so the man who sold the world, and we've covered this at length in its own chapter, but anyway, thought to be something of a weak link in the outfit, John Cambridge was unceremoniously sacked from the band in March to be replaced by Woody Woodmansey, who was brought in to contribute to the already forming The Man Who Sold the World album. And we'll be delving into Woody's um, uh, career, won't we, uh, in W, so oh, you can hang fire on that one. Of course we will. So let's go to April and May now, 19. 19- Bowie and his band went into Trident and Advision Studios to record their first album together. We've already covered the recording of the album in one episode, so, well, you know, you can go back and fill in the gaps if you want. But, an interesting diversion here. During the sessions for The Man Who Sold The World, the trio of Ronson, Visconti and Woodmansey, still under the hype moniker, signed to Vertigo Records. So, The Man Who Sold The World, ironically perhaps, didn't sell well, and that added to the fact that Bowie was wrapped up in his relationship with Angie, and the fact that they were still sleeping on the floor of Haddon Hall, led to the them quitting working with Davy Bowie and head back to Hull. Yeah, so Mick and Woody had made their joint decision to part company with Bowie on the way to perform a Bowie and the Hype gig. Uh, this is Woody talking. He said, uh, we got talking about, is this what we want to do? We had this gig in Leeds and I think Bowie was travelling about in his own car, which was a Riley in those days. He seemed to crash that car every other day. He wasn't a very good driver. Anyway, we got in a taxi and soon after came to a crossroads, which said Hull in one direction and Leeds the other. Yeah, so he continues. He said, Mick and I just kind of looked at each other and went, yeah, all right, 
And so we left Bowie and went back to Hull. He must have done that gig on his own uh, <laughs> back in Hull. They went straight to Benny Marshall and offered him the job in their new band, which was to retain the name The Hype. Which is all well and good, but none of the band were actually experienced songwriters. So Tony Visconti wrote a few songs, including one called Clarissa, which eventually got released in a 1998 reissue of his Inventory album. Mick and Benny wrote a tune called Powers of Darkness, a very heavy, almost Black Sabbath-type number. Another track called Invisible Long Hair was attempted, one of the worst titles mm. ever, possibly. Uh, but the band recognised that the songs were basically just riffs and chords with no melodies. Well, at least they saw it, Mark. There were conflicting existing record contracts that come complicated matters as well. The band then changed the name to Rono and went looking for live work. At this stage, Tony Visconti jumped ship to concentrate on getting production work, which paid off for him because he yeah. ended up working with T-Rex and selling yeah. millions. And this is where fellow Hull player Trevor Boulder enters the frame. Rono released only one single, Fourth Hour of My Sleep, backed with the previously mentioned Powers of Darkness through Vertigo in January of 71. And during this time, Mick spent a lot of time at the piano learning arranging skills. So with Rono stalling, the next phone call came from his ex-boss and it proved to be well-timed. Bowie was working on his next LP and wanted Ronson by his side. This was fortunate for both parties, particularly considering the just-mentioned honing of Mick's arrangement skills. Definitely. Mick agreed to return to London as long as he could bring a bass player and drummer with him, Trevor and Woody, and Bowie had recruited a virtuoso keyboardist into the band, a crucial appointment as it happened, it was of course Rick Wakeman. The departure of the talented arranger Visconti meant that Ronson, along with Bowie, could take over the arrangement duties, honing their skills, while the man who sold the world's studio engineer, Ken Scott, was to co-produce with Bowie. This is where we start cooking, Bob, and it moves to the next stage. And so uh, we're going to continue the life of Mick Ronson in the next episode of the A to Z of David Bowie, are we not? We are. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. Mick Ronson, part two. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.